talking Japan and Disney with Joe Chung on episode 24 of Checking In. Hello, I'm here today with Joe Chung, a man who needs no introduction. Joe, we have just a little bit of your time, so I'm going to get right into it. Let's talk Japan. Uh, I just got back. Sam is planning to go. You're a big fan. What's your current status with Japan? You've been monitoring uh, airfare, I'm sure, all the time like we do. What are you seeing? Thanks for having me, Bob. It's great to be back. It's been too long. Uh, Yes, so Japan is like always, it's like perpetually on the list. Uh, My wife and I went pretty early on in our marriage and then we went back uh, and so that first time we went we climbed mount fuji and this was right before i got into miles and point so we did this all in cash but we stayed in like a japanese oh bob i'm blanking like what's what's it called like it's a traditional japanese in type place like we onsen no it's not an onsen onsen i know that one that that's the uh Oh, Ryokin. Yes, R- Ryokin. Ryokin. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I-, I learned it all from you, Joe. I don't know. I'm just parroting back what you told <laughs> we're me. Just recycling, we're just recycling our knowledge to each other. There you go. Uh, yeah, so we stayed in a Japanese Ryokin, and we hiked Mount Fuji, spent a few days in Tokyo, and that was, you know, uh, we'd only been married for like one or two years then. So we went back for a 10-year anniversary, uh, went to Hokkaido, stayed in Sapporo, stayed at a onsen resort there where we actually you know because it was our 10-year anniversary sprung to have a private onsen um so we had an onsen right out of outside of our room it was outside that was great so those are our two times in japan and uh we love it and really want to go back um and then add on to that the fact that uh my son is super into trains and knows that the shinkansen the bullet train in japan is a big deal um there's a lot of reasons why our family wants to go back to japan but to your first question you know i checked you just went over uh we both live in new england our february break um I checked for next year's February break, and it looks like Japan Airlines is only releasing two business class seats per flight, which kind of sucks. I was, you know, they normally release four, which is what you were able to snag for this year, 2023. But uh, two is is rough. I was ready to fly in premium economy and put the rest in business, but I I don't know if I can do, you know, just two business. It's it's tough. And (laughs) And that Boston to Tokyo flight is so nice. It is. You really want to get that one. And no, I've seen for a long time, too, and I've never gotten so lucky as being able to book four right out of the gate. And I think part of that has to do, if I ever have seen four seats on that flight, on any any JAL flight far out, it's been on a non-Saturday, maybe even a non-Friday. Were you looking uh, midweek or uh, for those peach weekend departures to hit a school break? Yeah, so it's interesting you say that. I ended up looking the week after and the week before, and there were four seats you know, that whole time. But um, for our February break, I looked like all the way through Tuesday or Wednesday of February break, you know, maybe I'd pull our kids out for one or two days of school on the back end if we went to Japan for a week. And it was just two seats, two seats, two seats, at least on that post, on, at least on that Boston to Narita flight. So I guess Japan Airlines got wise, you know, it's a uh, bloggers killing deals, Bob. This is your fault for going this year. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, no, I mean, we've looked at this and compared this for so long. And I think things have gotten materially worse. We just had a devaluation, what, yesterday with Alaska and how many miles that's going to cost if you can find the partner space. Uh, but you're trying to bring a family of five. And so that gets, you know, two is one thing, four is another, five is is another thing altogether. So you've never gone there with the kids, it sounds like, though. It was uh, uh, kind of early in the, in the marriage and anniversary thing. You've never gone there with the kids. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we left our kids when we went for our anniversary. Um, but we know that they'll love it. So... I, you know, I will say that on that Dreamliner that Japan Airlines flies from Boston, we could rough it in economy. It's only 11, 12 hour flight. It's it's not the worst thing. So, you know, worst comes to worst. I mean, this is such literal first class problems we're talking about here. But, uh, you know, I think Japan is worth it. And being able to have that direct flight, I, I think that really changed things, um, even for the Japanese tourist market here in Boston. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and the flight was full. I mean, they're, they're selling that one way or another. And it, the travel is back big time to Japan. What would you do if you took the kids uh, for a week there? Would you stay in Tokyo mostly? Uh, go to Disney Sea? Would you go out into, uh, you know, you've visited other parts of, of Japan besides Tokyo? What would you do with them? So we definitely go both to Tokyo Disney Sea, which my wife and I did on our 10 year anniversary, just that one park, but we'd also go back to Tokyo Disneyland. Funny, I was just, we were just talking at dinner last night, counting the number of theme parks Disney had. And, you know, my daughter has been to nine and I've been to 10, but uh, I'm still m missing Tokyo Disneyland and Shanghai Disneyland. And so we would do that. But I also think because, you know, a large motivation of that trip would be to ride the Shinkansen a bit. Uh, that first time my wife and I went, we got one of those JR passes and it was, it, you know, it's more or less unlimited trips on the Shinkansen. So I remember we were staying in Kyoto and we just took a day trip to Kobe and there's a mall there with a really good Kobe beef steak place. So we just, Ooh, you know, yeah. took a trip there. Did we talk about that place before? I, I think at some point you mentioned uh, how great uh, Asian uh, department store could be. And I was just talking to my wife last night about this in in incredible pork cutlet, uh, Tenkansu, that we had at the Matsu. I think it's the same uh, company that runs within the Japan Pavilion, the little department store oh, there. Mitsukoshi. But it, they, these things, are, yeah, 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 yeah. So good. I mean, just like the, I didn't realize before I was, the first time we went there, the uh, restaurants on the, uh, the 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 grocery stores and the ground floor of these things, and then a bunch of retail, and then at the top there's restaurants, and I never knew there was restaurants on top. And these department stores in Asia, in Japan especially, are really incredible. Yeah. So <laughs> was that the kind of place you went to there? Uh, yeah, it kind of was. I mean, it was a restaurant in a mall, and it, it was expensive. It was priced like a restaurant. Yeah. So we should. Yeah, if you ever visit Asia and you're listening to this, um, Hong Kong's the same way, Taiwan's the same way I can speak to, and I think my limited time in Beijing, it was the same way, and then obviously uh, Japan is the same way. The department stores, like restaurants in a department store, which department stores kind of feel like mini malls in Asia. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. The restaurants, you're not going to... And I am the foremost lover of TGI Fridays and Cheesecake Factory type places. So I, there's no shade at all. But when you go to the restaurants at these department stores slash malls, it, it's not like that. They're like very nice restaurants. And, you know, I remember I lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years when I was about 10. Um, and I remember when we would go out for like fancy meals, we would have to go to like a mall or a department store type place. So 
don't sleep on that. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, we all associate, or I, at least growing up in New Jersey, I associate food court malls with like hanging out with your friends and, you know, waiting to go to the movies and things like that. The food courts in Asia, the food, it's a step above, you know, um, I would yeah. say yeah. from, uh, and again, no shade. I love Chick-fil-A, but I think, uh, you know, the food that you can get at food courts in Asian malls is pretty amazing. It, you know, it's it started uh, this uh, appreciation for the, the Japanese department stores just in the ground floor of the Tokyo Station. Uh, just walking from there, where we got off the train, the Narita Express, to our hotel, we thought this would just be like Penn Station, you know, this kind of dodgy place that you want to scamper through as quickly as possible. But it took us a solid, you know, 20 minutes because we were gawking and checking out so many of the, you know, it's a different model. Like you say, a department store isn't like like Macy's here or whatever the the equivalent you would think of it as. The department store is almost like a mall in itself. And you go from having these retailers with little kiosks to having their own stores. And then it starts to feel very much like a mall. But there's brands that don't have here in the United States a, a much of a presence as their own kind of like freestanding entity. So it's it's really pretty incredible. And some of the brands I uh, like uh, Tokyo Banana and Butter Butler, like these little confectionery treats that they have there they're just the branding is so on point and the the way they design and it's kind of disney like i think the way the thought that they put into the 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 font and the the retail experience the way it presents itself to a customer is really next level i mean i think america is pretty good at branding uh, but they, they they take it to a whole nother level over there hey have you ever tried that makes me think of have you ever tried like uh japan's perfect fruit no. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, so I think we first came upon it in Sapporo, which is in Hokkaido, which is the northern island. Um, a lot of people go there to ski in the winter and things like that, although mm -hmm. we did not when we went on our February break um, back in 2019. But what they will do is they will like they will take fruit and just like take the most perfect like imagine a strawberry, right? We yeah. pay six dollars for a box of strawberries at Whole Foods or whatever, actually more than that these days. And, you know, out of that entire box of strawberries, you maybe have one that looks like good, but like some are a little bruised and then they have like little funny shapes and things like that. Sure. Yeah. Well, in Japan, like what they will do is they will take like all the best looking strawberries and the ones that have like perfect shape, you know, no bumps, no rough edges. And they'll put it in these like little plastic containers and like three strawberries will be like $30. I kid you not. Uh, and so when we are, I, I, I think strawberries were a very big thing. And, and seeing them in the department stores, uh, in the grocery stores of department stores, it was more of a display like jewelry. Than, yes, yes. <laughs> than yes. So, so, yeah. so, so some fruit will be displayed like jewelry. So of course you can buy like your regular box of strawberries. Um, and so I remember we like, we, we cheaped out. We didn't, we didn't, I don't think we bought strawberries, but my wife bought like two slices of can cantaloupe or, or maybe it was a, uh, Honeydew, I, I can't remember. It was some kind of melon. And, you know, and like it's actually, I think they breed the fruit to be like sweeter too. So it's not just a presentation mm -hmm. thing. Um, it is a taste yeah. as well. Obviously, I think ultimately, you know, we would not do that regularly, but it's like we were in Japan. They have this fruit on display, like as if it's a, you know, like you said, as if it's jewelry. So, you know, my wife decided to try some. I think that two slices of melon were like $10, which. I'm just <laughs> just laughing thinking about it, but you know you gotta you gotta try new things when you're in other countries. Absolutely, um, I, I appreciate your uh, context there of other 
countries in Asia, uh, until you get uh, on the ground there and you experience these different places, you really can't differentiate them. I think I asked you back in the day, you know, should we go to Hong Kong first or Tokyo first? And you were saying, well, you know, you've got the, the, the language is English in, in Hong Kong, so you might find that appealing, but Tokyo is very orderly, so you might like that appealing as well. And you just, you just got to visit all these places to really be able to differentiate them. I was just talking with um, uh, Sia Frost on, on a show that's dropping soon about Southeast Asia and all the different countries there. So you can't just look at a map or, you know, take some, I, I found that a lot of people when we came back from Japan. They conflate a lot of uh, different parts of Asia wrongly with uh, Japan. It's like, that. no, that's China. You're thinking of the wrong country altogether. So you really got to get over there and see these countries, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I agree. So and I, I, I think I, I think we talked about this before. Uh, Hong Kong is probably the easiest for Westerners to go over to, um, you know, people from the States or even from England and stuff like that, just because. English is still readily spoken there, even after the uh, reintegration into mainland China and things like that. Uh, I, my family is a little, I don't know, we're a little gun shy on going back to Hong Kong right now, just because we're not sure. <laughs> I don't know. I always, I always joke. I might have to, you know, delete my Twitter account before I go to Hong Kong, just in case. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, my, and it's funny because my parents are there. They're there for the first time uh, since the pandemic as well. But, you know, Hong Kong is a lovely place spent two and a half years growing up in there and still uh, consider it home in many respects. So since it's, since things are open now, I think, um, you know, all the quarantine and testing stuff is lifted both. Actually, I saw China's done that this week as well. So Asia's pretty much open again. So I think it's time to get back for a lot of us. Yeah. Well, I'm pleased to report Japan is, is, is still great. Uh, you know, the, there's mask wearing going on. Uh, I think you hear that's been diminished even since we were there. So I think thankfully, after a lot of years of not being able to tap into certain places of the country, of the world, especially, uh, things are back open and, uh, you know, a little diminished there. I, you know, maybe like to think of Japan or some other countries as having everything figured out, but they're straining with the same things that we are in terms of, you know, employment. And it doesn't seem like inflation has hit as much over there. But one thing, uh, maybe pivoting a little bit to Disney parks in our limited time here, Disney Sea was the most crowded Disney park I have ever seen. I the the lines there, the the, the attractions there aren't uh, groundbreaking, right? It's kind of like a recast uh, Soren, uh, Toy Story Mania, you know, Tower of Terror. They're not revolutionary rides that they have there. They're presented in a slightly different way. But when you see a three-hour wait for a ride that you know with a little swift you can just walk on in florida or california it's like no way so we just walked around there and left we bought you know a week weeknight evening pass and it was it was so crowded it just didn't work out for us so are you hearing that from other people uh how disney parks around the world are rebounding from the you know the maybe revenge travel that's now occurring in other parts of the world that we experienced maybe a year ago yeah i was definitely surprised by your experience at tokyo disney sea although obviously i i don't follow tokyo that that's like the one uh disney park that I'm not able to book as a travel agent because they're own, owned by Oriental Land Company. I was surprised, mm -hmm. but at the same time, we have seen in the domestic parks that it has been, you know, as we are talking right now, this week is probably the busiest week of spring break. Um, at least that's what Disney seems to have been anticipating. And you know, because Genie Plus, which is their cut the line service, it fluctuates in price, and this week it's been at $29, which is the highest it has ever gone, and that's how high it was when we were there on February break. And so what I'm finding is that the crowds are pretty rough, and it can be pretty bad at times, but at the same time, 
I'm not sure if it's because people haven't been there for so long or if, you know, Disney just does such a good job. But the reality is I'm hearing very few, like, I guess, I guess the way to say it is people are like, oh, it was really crowded, but we had a great time. There's always the starts with where it was really crowded, but it always ends with, but we had a great time. I mean, I had a friend from high school who uh, wasn't my client. I was just helping her out. I didn't, you know, she booked her trip before we reconnected. And she was just down there last week and she like the whole time uh, and the whole time before she left, she was basically like, oh, I'm just doing this for my kids. I'm going to hate it. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Bob, she comes back and she's been like texting me nonstop talking about Disney, like asking if she can come on the podcast. You know, she's like, they definitely, they definitely, (laughs) they definitely want her over. And the funny thing is she would text me and she's like, oh, we're going to Animal Kingdom now. And this is at like 10 a.m. And then at 3 p.m. she'd be like, oh, that was a great day. And, you know, for Disney people, like going to a park for five hours is not, that is not a full day in the parks. Yeah. But I, I do think that a lot of the quote unquote normal guests are having a really good time because just like in Japan, Disney does really care about service. And I I, I think that is what has definitely started coming back much stronger. Like the service has improved, you know, when the pandemic first, I guess not when Disney first reopened, but after a while, the level of service had dropped a little bit and people were complaining, but I think they're getting back to normal. Um, You know, there was like a dip. You know, it was high at the beginning because there was no guests and then it dipped as they were like getting used to it. And then now things seem back to normal again, which is awesome. Well, there's some things I want to talk to you about being a Disney travel agent. But first of all, uh, congratulations on, on succeeding so much in that. I see you collecting all kinds of awards. You've helped me personally. I, I want to, you know, ask some questions kind of, you know, behind the scenes on that. We'll save that for a, a separate podcast, a quick episode that we'll record here and release on our, our paid channel. But here on the No Annual Fee, I want to talk kind of generally about how you advise clients that you're you're taking on uh, you do more you know the, the 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 way disney travel agencies work you book for a customer disney pays you a commission and the customer doesn't pay anymore for the the services that you provide in terms of not just uh, you know clicking the button and making the reservation but consulting on where to stay making maybe some uh, genie plus reservations doing dining reservations i really want to hear about that in particular you seem to have some magic there that i can't comprehend but how do you approach this kind of uh, this kind of customer joe i and it maybe is more general than just even disney you like you don't want to give them so many questions that they feel like they're not going to have a good time if they don't do all of these crazy things. And Disney is about as crazy and complicated as I've ever seen anything. I mean, the barriers to entry to having a good time there are seemingly very high. But if there's things that you don't know about the experience, then maybe it doesn't bother you that much. Maybe you could have done more, but you didn't know that you could do that more or you could do that better. So it doesn't really bother you. So like you say, people are like, it's crowded. We, you know, went on enough rides to satisfy our our experience and we had some food and everyone was in good mood. So it was a good experience. How do you advise a client in such a way that they have the best time possible without making them feel like they're going to have a bad time if they don't do all these crazy things that the real Disney experts do? Yeah, you know, I... (sighs) While you were talking, it really feels analogous to I'm sure, you know, at this at this stage, when someone asks you for miles and points help, say a family member, I bet you 10 years ago, you probably dumped all this information on them. But now I'm guessing you don't you don't go as hardcore. No, it's it's so true. Right. Um, And that's 
a good outlet here for why we have podcasts. And so our, our spouses and friends don't, I mean, the classic thing that people will say is, oh, I had to start a blog because so many people were asking me about it. To, to that point, you, you, back in the day, maybe you were foaming at the mouth and excited about talking about all this stuff. Now if a family member says, and specifically, this has come up with me recently, uh, they're asking, oh, we're going to Disney. We have no clue what we're doing. I hear you go a lot. And I, I was like, well, that's just, I, I don't know where to begin with them, Joe, right? Like, I don't want to say, you got to go make these dining reservations. Oh, it's too late for that already. You got to get your park reservations. Oh, you got to get Genie Plus. You got to, I, I just, I don't know where to, where to find that, that right point between so crazy and nothing at all. Well, first of all, send them to me. I'll take care of them. But uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, what I really try to do, and I, this is something that I've learned is, and an, also something that just practically needed to happen is I really try to meet clients where they are. You know, there's a range of clients. Like if you, you know, you contacted me to, because you were going to Disneyland or whatever, or whatever, you already knew what you wanted to do at Disneyland. And so you just needed help with X, Y, or Z. Happy to do that. But then there are clients who will contact me. And this is where the analog to miles and points people might be, you know, your, I don't know, brother's sister-in-law might be like, Hey, I have 200,000 ultimate rewards points and I really want to go to Europe. You know, how do, how do I get there or whatever? And that's similar to clients being like, Hey, we want to go to Disney world for the first time. Where do we go? So generally like I will tell people only what they need to know at a certain given point in time. And the very nice thing, I don't know if Disney did this on purpose, but Disney kind of drip feeds what you need to know because there's a timing to things, right? You book your hotel and your park tickets, then you book your park reservations, then you probably book your plane tickets, then you book your dining reservations, and then finally you start thinking about Genie Plus and stuff like that. Well, that mm -hmm. all happens over the course of like months. And so I found that, you know, you ease people into it. And after you have this for the first few conversations, you can kind of tell whether people really want to get in there and get deep. And then, you know, you just direct them to podcasts and blogs um, so that they can start researching for themselves. Or if they just want to like, know, yeah, maybe ride these three rides and eat at this place and call it a day. So it really comes to feeling out, you know, what the client wants to do and what they want to know about. Yeah. You know, one thing I saw in uh, planning things to do in Japan was that if you're working with somebody over there, a tour guide, a friend, anybody who's been there that has some recommendation, you, you really know you're getting good service when they're asking questions of you, not just throwing recommendations at you. Because you could say, oh, you know, you know, what's the what's the best restaurant at uh, down at Disney World? And you say, oh, Victoria and Albert's, that's a that's the best place. And they're like, what? No, this place is so expensive. We don't want to get dressed up. There's no kids. You know, it's like <laughs> tailoring the recommendations. Uh, is is super important. So if you're getting advice from somebody and they're not asking you questions about your preferences, I think that's a red flag. But how do you handle that? How can you possibly service all these clients and their individual preferences going back with them asynchronously? And uh, how, how do you handle all that? Yeah. So, I mean, with Disney, it's like you say, what's your budget? And I'm always very... I, in fact, it shocks me how much people are actually willing to spend because I'm always very much like, uh, this is going to like, you better sit down before you look at this quote. Like, it's going to be pretty crazy. But, uh, you know, I found that. And I guess this is something I learned being a travel agent. Like, I found that um, people people's budgets are just different. Like some yeah. like for when we first started doing this, like spending over $2,000 at Disney, which was realistic at the time, you know, that was just like, oh yeah, that, that's our, that's our cap, but people will contact me and they are ready to spend, you know, 
$10,000. And so you kind of just don't know what uh, people are willing to do. So I try to give people a range of options. So unless people are asking for specific hotels, I will give them something in the value, moderate or deluxe level. And then they pick, you know, then it's very easy to see without having to be like, Hey, Bob, what's your budget? You know, if I show you the prices for value, moderate and deluxe, you'll tell me which ones you're interested in. And then I'll just by default, know. And you know, I don't, no one needs to be embarrassed about, you know, no one likes talking about money. It's America. <laughs> I'm sure you've gotten pretty deep in there, but no, that's a good, a good, good, some good guidance on how it actually works in practice. And I think you probably get a idea once somebody says, you know, what hotel they're looking level they're looking at, then maybe you have an idea of what uh, dining options they'd like or ground transportation. You know, some people it's really a once in a lifetime thing. So $10,000. And that's a number I've heard from friends anecdotally as well. Uh, it seems bonkers to me to kind of just lay that all out there for any given trip. But I think people, if they're going to go down there for a week and it's going to be the one time they do it when kids are growing up, they're willing to throw some money on it. It's a different, different equation, depending on how often you go down there and uh, you know what your economic strata is. Yeah, and you know when you mentioned the ground transportation, like I think what has really helped being super steeped in Disney stuff is that when I find out from clients what they're looking for, like are they looking for convenience? Are they looking for the best value? Are they looking to hang out at the hotel for like a large portion of their trip? Having been to Disney so much uh, the last four or five years, and also just constantly, you know, drinking Disney info as if I'm drinking from a fire hose, I think that gives me the ability to, you know, make a decently confident recommendation that, you know, this is, these are the hotels that I think might work for what you're talking about. You know, it's funny. I was talking to my wife just the other day. I, I can't remember, you know, I was telling her about an issue that I had, um, that she didn't know about that happened like a year ago. And she's like, how do you, like view your client's experiences or maybe she wasn't saying that, but what I was sharing with her was I always end up feeling like a personal stake in the client's trip going well. I don't think that's actually healthy. Um, but that, that's how I feel. And so, especially when it's, um, Oh, I remember what I was telling her. Sometimes clients will be like, Hey, I want to stay at this resort. And in my head, I'm like, uh, I don't love that resort. But if clients say that, then I don't feel any, pressure for them to like it or not like it. But if I'm like, right, right. Don't, don't uh, yuck their yum. Right. I mean, if they like exactly, that place for some exactly. nostalgic reason or something like that, don't, don't get in the way. But when I have a client who's like, Oh, I don't know where I want to stay. And I'm like, Oh, these are my three recommendations. And then they pick one of those recommendations. Then all of a sudden I feel pressure. Like if things go badly, it's like, ah, oh, did I let them down? Although of course, like I said, it's not healthy because not everything is, you know, experiences are different. Like it could have poured the whole entire time and that totally changes things. But, you know, that's just kind of, I guess, my personality. Well, is there any opportunity for you as a Disney travel agent to help uh, them with some kind of make good after their trip? You know, I say they they, can't, they come back and they don't say anything about their trip and you say, uh, did you have a good time? They'll say, well, actually all the rides were broken and the lines were long and we had a terrible time. I mean, is there anything that you've ever done to kind of referee or negotiate on their behalf with Disney? I mean, what do you have any leverage as a Disney travel agent? I guess is what I'm asking. I think the leverage is Disney provided uh, Disney wants lifelong customers. I think that is what they're good at. Like that is my friend who went last week, like they succeeded, you know, she was like, I fully intended on never coming back. Like she was planning for this to be her one trip with her kids. But now she's like, 
no, I think I want to go back um, sometime when they're older, right? So this is what Disney is in the business of doing. So they're very good at doing make goods. So my role as a travel agent sometimes is just to be that person, you know, like I don't love, it's funny. Did you see that article about fake personal assistants? I th- maybe. Tell me more about it. Basically, if you, like if you have a personal assistant, life is easier because you don't have to interface with brands or whoever. Like you don't have to interface with hotels. You don't have to complain about things. Your personal assistant yeah. can do it. But then people make fake personal assistants, and it's just as effective because you know they look they look like they have more clout. They, oh, this person has a personal assistant. They must, you know. You know. Now that you describe it, I think I saw Adam uh, Travel Fanboy uh, uh, tweeting about that. Probably right. He tweeted <laughs> about just. it because I tweeted him about it. I was like, he was ahead of the curve six years ago. There you go. Quote unquote <laughs> personal assistant. But I bring this up to say that sometimes it's hard for people to be like, hey, this went badly, Disney. Is there anything you can do? Well, as a travel agent, I can do that for them. And, you know, moving into our final topic, I had a client who sailed Disney concierge on the Wonder, completely loved it, but mm-hmm. there was an issue with their stateroom and they had booked a one bedroom concierge stateroom. Um, so Disney gave them a veranda stateroom to use and they used that one instead. But they were like, hey, we paid for a one bedroom. We were staying in a veranda the whole entire time. And so I helped them interface with Disney for a make good. And, you know, Disney was able to compensate them in a way for that. And so they didn't have to worry about, you know, I called Disney for them. I emailed Disney for them. So they didn't end up having to worry about that. Um, and so, you know, and there was just another person advocating on their behalf. They also did some contacting with Disney, too. So, you know, those are the th- types of things that I can do sometimes if things go badly. That's a great example. And I was going to ask on your cruise. Uh, so uh, Disney Concierge was one of the favorite vacations I ever took with our kids. I mean, it was just fantastic. I wrote about it on Lux Recess. Robin's been on the show a bunch of times. The three of us get together, uh, me, uh, you, Joe, and, and Robin, uh, you know, kind of the Boston contingent of these things. Uh, I had a great time on that cruise. You did it uh, for the first time concierge level on the Disney Dream. I was listening to you uh, <laughs> quiz... Um, Leslie, on, on, on which which ship you went on, I was right along there with you. That's the same one we did, uh, Concierge Jean. Did you stay in, in a one-bedroom or a veranda? And just to be clear, that's like the one-bedroom is like twice as big as the, the standard room, right? Yeah, we stayed in a one-bedroom, and uh, it was really nice. Nice. The whole experience. <laughs> nice. You joke about people dropping 10K on a vacation, but... Uh... That's a no comment. Yearly similar number. I <laughs> no <bet>. comment <laughs> here, but but this was only a four night cruise, right? It was a four night cruise, and we, I mean, we paired it with a Disney World stay in the beginning. I, you know, I was, I was, Leslie and I recorded our kind of is Disney Cruise Line Concierge worth it episode um, that'll be coming out soon. You know, these things are never worth it if you just add up the numbers, like. Boarding and getting off was easy. There was some alcohol. They gave us popcorn. We had a nicer room. We had a club lounge to use. But the, none of those things will add up to, you know, I calculated that I paid about 50% more than I had been willing to pay to do the cruise in general. Like none of that's going to add up to that 50%. But there's something to be said. And, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older or whatever, but just enjoying things a little more and um, and the phrase you used, Bob, when we were talking about it before I left was, you know, just staying above the fray. I, I do find that to be very valuable. And, and it's kind of like you can't put a price tag on that. It's it's scary. But, you know, I'm starting to understand why people spend $5,000 on a business class flight instead of using points. You know what I mean? Uh, or, you know, my in-laws, they had to go back to Taiwan and they are getting older. So they ended up springing for 
paid cash business class flights, um, which is something I'd never thought I'd see them do, but you know, they needed it to actually be able to make the trip. So you kind of see how, as you get older, your back starts hurting more. Um, you want to just enjoy things and not stress about things as much. And that Disney, Disney cruise line concierge really helped me to do that and the family. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you know, so much to touch on there. Um, but people should absolutely, if I haven't mentioned it before, listen to your Disney Deciphered podcast with Leslie. Fantastic. Uh, kind of targeted at entry level, but you, you keep your finger on the tabs of what's going on, what's new. So even people who are seasoned there really enjoy that. Nice bite-sized, uh, but in-depth enough to be very interesting and helpful. Disney Deciphered with uh, Joe and Leslie. So check that out. I think we need to pivot over to the paid show now because our time is limited. Anything else you want to mention here? Uh, any, any other uh, things? that you're working on you're we're going to talk about that more in a, in a minute but anything else you want to give a, a shout out to right now yeah so disney deciphered um i'm still a producer on the miles to memories podcast so i'm on there every once in a while and yeah if you're looking to book a disney vacation uh, you know this is the thing i always say miles and points people you cannot pay for your disney vacation with points so if you're going to pay cash anyway and you need some help feel free to reach out joseph chung at travelmation that's with an m dot net um, and i'm happy to help you out you know the really only good way to save on disney vacation is to get disney gift cards at a discounted rate um, and so that's where you're going to get your most savings but uh, i can help you you know working with me you can pay with all of those that you want i've had you know clients and it's funny, clients from the miles and points space, they'll be like, um, can I pay with seven different gift cards? And I'm like, yeah, no problem. That's nothing. Yeah, that's <laughs> just combine them into increments of a thousand. But other than that, you know, I got you. No problem. I love it. Thanks for your time, Joe. You have been listening to Checking In with Robert Dwyer on the Milonomics Podcast Network. 